Hey there, adventurer. I appreciate you taking the time to do an investigation check and dig into the archives of the show. I wanted to let you know that this is an old episode back when the show was called The Hard Thing Podcast. The topics are still the same, though the format and some of the names are different. If instead you are coming back to The Hard Thing Podcast, well, surprise, we changed our name and some of our branding. Feel free to hang out in the archives and listen to all the wonderful old episodes of The Hard Thing Podcast or take on a new adventure by listening to some of our current episodes. Either way, happy adventuring. What sets high performers apart from those who are just doing enough to get by? It is mindset. And how do you find or develop that mindset? Well, that's what we talk about today on the Hard Thing Podcast. Welcome back to another episode. I'm your host, Justin Lewis, and this is the show designed to help you improve your life, specifically by doing hard things. Today, I have the awesome opportunity to talk with Marty Strong, who is a former Navy SEAL, also the author of the book, be nimble, which is uh, coming out pretty soon here. So uh, I'm excited to give you my conversation with Marty Strong. Listen up while we talk about doing hard things and overcoming average. All right. Well, thank you for coming on the Hard Thing Podcast, Marty. I'm excited to have you here and have you uh, talk with us and, and have this conversation with you. Thanks for having me, Justin. Of course. Uh, well, I like to jump in with the question that I ask every single guest, and hopefully I prepared you enough. Uh, but Marty, what's the hardest thing you've ever done? The hardest thing I've ever done was bury my oldest son, Michael, who died. Uh, he's in Arlington National Cemetery. I'm so sorry. Um, usually, usually I ask that question and I kind of expect... Um, other other responses you know in your case i was kind of expecting uh buds or you know <laughs> going to combat um well yes for the the hardest so that was that was the hardest there's a lot of other like hard ones after that but no, yeah. yeah that was the hardest and i have to say i can't imagine the difficulty in having to do something like that um because you know in some way, shape, or form, I think we all kind of prepare ourselves for the death of our parents, or at least, you know, we hope we do. Sure. But uh, I'm guessing for our children, that's something you never expect. Yeah, not in the con. He died in a in a car accident in an ice storm here in the United States after uh, a tour in Iraq. So I was prepared for him to to die in Iraq. I mean, I was in uniform. I understand that's the risk you take. He volunteered to go in the service and he volunteered to go to Iraq. We talked at length before he actually uh, went in and volunteered and, and he, he came out of Iraq without a scratch. And then he ends up dying in an ice storm in a big car accident at nine o'clock in the morning on a Wednesday. So I wasn't prepared for that, uh, you know, and not, not that particular way. Yeah. Um, I, I know death is a very touchy subject and if uh if we, if we need to move on at all please let me know um in your book it it talks about or, or at least from what i understand um your book deals with coping at least with in changing information changing tasks things like that being able to kind of keep up with what's coming down the pipe um and though it's kind of a different avenue i'd say what were some of the ways that you coped with the death of your son and, and i'm asking to hopefully help someone out there who has the death of a loved one on the horizon and doesn't know it yet sure well I've, I've met a lot of people that have lost loved ones and i lost a lot of friends before this particular um event with my son in, in the seal teams and one or two friends of mine in high school from accidents so you know, the concept of death and the, and the process of grieving and all that wasn't new to me. And I'm talking about maybe 15 or 16 people before my son died. So the, um, I'd also had an experience loading, you know, uh, seals that were KIA and seals that were severely wounded on helicopters and, and a mission. So, you know, those are all traumatic events and it doesn't inoculate you. It doesn't make you numb to uh the emotions 
that were associated with the next death, regardless of where, where it comes from, you have to, it gives you a chance to exercise your, your thoughts about death and also about life. And you start to get the feeling that it's either random or it's brought upon the person that died by events that they participated in choices they made that led them kind of like a final destination movie thing mm -hmm. or there's something else. And I don't have a really strict religious or philosophical view along religious lines about any of that. But I do believe that all those earlier experiences prepared me for the suddenness of death and, you know, the phone call type of thing. And I, you know, we got the phone call and, and that's about as sudden as it can, it can get. Right. And and then I had a lot of time to think about it immediately afterwards. In my case, which I think happens with most uh, parents, somebody, you know, the mother or the father, somebody has to kind of stand up and hold everything together for a while because there's a lot of things you got to do, a lot of processes. And so if you are that person that's the strong um, kind of manager of the of the grief and the emotions and all the administrative logistics and all the things that are happening, they're all very serious and have to be done. You should one, give yourself, you know, a break and not beat yourself up because there'll be, there'll be a time get done what you need to get done. And this could be the mother, the father, it could be a grandfather figure. It could be anybody, an older brother sometimes steps in and does this, but usually somebody steps in and they get it all done. And then they feel guilty afterwards because they didn't go through all the open grieving when everybody else did and almost maybe it even appeared cold because they have to compartmentalize to be able to perform. And that's okay. So if anybody goes through this process and everybody's going to go through this process at one point, that's okay. You know, there are responsibilities, there are decisions to be made. And if you're that person, go ahead and do all the things you have to do and just set aside the fact that your, your time of grieving is going to happen, you know, in a couple of weeks or a month. And then the second thing is allow yourself that time, allow yourself to sit back and think about all of it, get yourself off the hook of being the, the family project manager, you know, the, the family legal person, the family financial advisor, all the things that go along with a death and let yourself just be a human being and just react to it. And the third thing is you're never going to stop thinking about it. And I've talked to people that are in their eighties and nineties and they, I've lost children in different ways 60 years ago. They never stop. Not a, not a day goes by. They don't think about it, but you can decide whether you want to think about it as a completely negative experience or whether you can dwell on that, or you can think about and dwell on all the positive things in that person's life in that and how that life interacted with you and other people. So I'll, I'll give you an example of that in practice, my wife and I, we don't uh, celebrate or identify or mark, the anniversary of our son Michael's death. What we do is we have a celebration and a ceremony we put together on his birthday. And it's kind of a, a Viking thing. We, we have a bottle of vodka that he, uh, that he liked. That was actually when he was visiting us for Thanksgiving before he passed and it's the same bottle. And we, we pour a shot out of his bottle. My wife, pours some Jameson's in a shot glass. I pour some tequila in a shot glass. And then we have a, usually a cupcake or a small uh, cake with one candle in it. We take a, a birthday card and we write a message to him. And, uh, and then we take a picture of all that. And then we do a toast to him outside. And then we set the birthday card on fire so the message can float up with the smoke. The problem is in the first three or four years, we found out that you can't burn a laminated birthday card. <laughs> so, so, it, you know, it's been, it's been about 16 years now. So we're really good at that whole exercise. We, we find you have to find a, a paper one or even make one. That's even better. You have to dump gasoline on it. I mean, otherwise, especially if it's cold out, which it usually is in February. Um, otherwise it's the ceremony uh, gets tainted with your, with your pain in the, in the, in in the cold. So we do that every year on the birthday. And, uh, and then we think about all the great things. We look at pictures, we think about all the good things and the great things and the great experiences. And you can't help but once in a while dwell on something. I have five kids. So I, you know, I see they're all grown. And I see my grandkids and I think, 
what would have been, what have his kids have been like. But those are what, those are the kinds of things I think would be helpful. One, don't beat up yourself. Uh, give yourself time to grieve once the process of of the logistics and everything is done. Um, two, you know, kind of kind of grips with the positive of the person rather than the negative of the event. Don't let the event drive you. And three, you're never going to forget. It's always going to be there. So it might as well be a positive thought. And then four, if you're going to mark the occasion, try to make it a happy event. I, I love that. I have to, uh, well, comes to mind a, I think it's a maybe Navajo, but it's definitely a Native American saying that something like live so that, you know, when you were born, you cried and the world rejoiced, live so that when you die, uh, the world cries and, and you rejoice or something like that. Basically live in, in such a way yeah. that you're remembered. And also, uh, you know, growing up, my family, or maybe my dad, and we all kind of took the example of him. He, he grew up in the John Wayne era, you know, uh, a man's man and whatnot. And he never liked to celebrate his own birthday. So all of us kids, we kind of took that upon ourselves. And then I met my wife and she is all about celebrating birthdays. And I have to say, uh, you know, thinking about that and then hearing your experiences of celebrating the life of your son, I, I think maybe we don't celebrate life enough, especially our own or other people's. Maybe we don't spend enough time um, just happy to be here. And uh, hopefully hopefully that makes up for all of the, 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 the sad depressing that I brought up with talking about death and whatnot. Um, oh, yeah. But, it's, yeah. It's, it's always better to see the world as an optimistic glass yeah. overflowing kind of point of view. There's enough negative out there. It'll come along, you know, you got to deal with it, but I just, I've just decided to live that way and, you know, and it helps. And actually uh, that kind of brings up another question that I wanted to ask. So um, in the military, uh, obviously, and, and, and the closer to combat you get, the more negative things you're probably going to see. And in situations like that, I can imagine it's really easy to develop a mindset that, you know, you, you get the job done, but in your off hours, can, you can develop a mindset that can somewhat be torturous, um, can somewhat lead to a, a negative worldview. So what, uh, what sort of things did you do, or maybe you saw some of your colleagues do, to kind of keep yourself above that negative miasma, if that makes sense? Well, I know what you described is in common culture, movies, TV shows, et cetera. And I've never been in conventional forces. I've only been in, in special operations. Mm -hmm. They're, they're pre-selected for a certain mindset and, you know, they have high, high IQs. They, you can't get through any of the selection programs for the green berets, the seals, air force special ops, and the same thing overseas, you know, British SAS, um, the French commander Hubert. I mean, there's a, I, we worked with all these guys, unless you have a sense of humor and you're able to let things kind of roll off your back a little bit. Otherwise you'd never make it because the training after you're selected and you actually get, you know, to wear the pin and, and uh, be the cool guy. The training after that is basically stress testing you. It's putting you into situations and, and in conditions and in scenarios that are difficult, if not impossible, at first glance, it's kind of like a, you know, a Rubik's cube, you know, and you, you don't know the answer. You don't know how to fix it. You don't know how to make it work, but you've been selected for those other attributes I mentioned to figure out a way to make it work. So those kinds of people in special operations have a different mindset in a combat environment. First off, most of the guys that I've ever worked with and the guys I've met since I've been out of the military, they're in special ops, see it as a noble cause. Combat, when we go in, is for something important. We aren't taking a hill. Uh, we aren't just holding a piece of ground. We're going in to capture or kill Osama bin Laden. We're going in to rescue Americans in the middle of Africa that are being held hostage by, by bad guys. Um, doing the same thing in the Philippines or anywhere else around the world. 
we're seizing ships, we're, we're killing Somali pirates that are holding hostages. That's the kind of thing that we know is going to be on the mission list. So when we get the call and we go, even if we're in a sustained combat environment, like say Afghanistan or Iraq was for many years, they don't call us up and say, hey, we want you to just go down and do something normal. So that means that the mindset that you have is about performance. It's not the negative kind of movie combat environment. It's about performance. <clears throat> and why you focus on performance is because the people you're surrounded with are obsessed with performance. That means your peers. The, the other people you're working with in special operations and SEAL teams, they're trained like you. They have most of the same training opportunities as you, but it's highly competitive internally because none of us want to let each other down. So there's, no, there's never a day that goes by where we're trying to learn something new so that we have more uh, contribution to the team or learning something that we know better so that we make a better contribution to the team. So when we're actually told to go do something, we're focused on our stepping up and our performing and contributing as best we can so that we're not letting anybody else down. And, and that's universal among all the people on the mission. If you execute the mission, the mission can be successful and you come back and you may still, most of our guys would still be critiquing in their minds what they could have done better, how they could have decided to do this, what choice, what judgment they made. We have general military critiques after every mission, training or otherwise, to point out how we can be better as a group. But individually, every one of those people, the second they got on the helicopter or got on the boat or got on the submarine heading home or to a safe place, they're running that through their head. And, I, you know, like an NFL football player, they're wondering, how, why didn't I jink left instead of jink right? And then I got tackled. Or why did I not catch the ball with my hands instead of my shoulder? And I, you know, that's just the professional. So it's a completely professional performance-driven mindset now when you lose somebody in the team everybody feels like they failed that's that's the number one thought we failed somehow we failed that person and so you have a guilt but it's a guilt about you did something to let that person you know be hit and hurt and and maybe didn't keep them alive after they were hit and hurt and maybe you weren't even the person that could have kept them alive. It's just the way it is. That's the initial reaction. So that's even a deeper introspective search on what you should have done different or better. But then the next day, you're in the, you're in the briefing room and there's another one coming up. So you can't dwell on that and let it inhibit and, and impact your thoughts and your, and your performance because that's still job number one. You don't want to be that, that uh, loose cannon or that you know, person that's one step too slow on this mission because you're feeling sorry for the, you know, yourself or the team or whatever. And then it happens again because you did something to cause the next one. So yeah. And you put it away, you compartmentalize it until you come home. And then once you come home, especially if there's a regular rotation, you have guilt that you're not back there contributing. And that's just, I mean, that's special operations. That's the way they think about it. That's why they went, you know, in Afghanistan, most, most guys in the SEAL teams had two to three times more combat tours than the SEALs that went to Vietnam had because they wanted to be back there. They wanted to be in the fight. They wanted to do good things and to, and to uh, and, and be a part of the cause. A couple of things really stand out to me. I'd say the first thing is the, the noble cause, um, kind of this idea, this, this deep, deep, deep belief that there's something more important and greater than oneself, which is incredibly admirable. And it actually makes me think of, uh, you know, the song, America, the beautiful, uh, I think it's in the third verse where it says something like, uh, and country more than self-loved or something talking about men in 1776 who loved the country more than themselves. And, and how that that's, I think that's mirrored today in a lot of the servicemen and women, um, you're not in the military now, you deal more in business. <clears throat> Have you seen that, not necessarily that same mindset, um, but have, have you seen something akin to that or, or, or really figured out a way to help people generate kind of that idea in another organizational setting? Not necessarily just like the mission first, but kind of this idea that we're in a noble cause together, if that makes sense. 
You know, the short answer is yes, but a lot of the same characteristics apply. So the selection for law enforcement, the selection for firefighting, the selection for emergency medical technicians, the selection for ER nurses and doctors, those people are, even if they don't put their bodies at risk every day, say in the emergency room, they, their performance is life and death outcomes. Mm -hmm. And all three of those categories I just mentioned. So they rely on each other. They rely on each on themselves and their own proficiency and their own performance. And they rely on each other. Very rarely do you find, you know, a firefighting unit that just slacks off and doesn't really care if that guy over there can't pick another firefighter up and carry him out of a burning building. They're all working out. They're all, and they're all giving each other a bunch of crap, right? That same thing in the SEAL teams. Everybody's like, I tell you when I, you know, I started out as an enlisted SEAL for 10 years, went to officer's cannon school and I was an officer for the second 10. You get to around 30, 31, the, the, the corollary with say the NFL's spot on. You've got 22 and 23 year old studs that are zipping by you. You know, you're wearing 75 or 80 pounds of combat gear, running an obstacle course or doing something. And they're like, Woo! and maybe they'll look back and go morning, sir. You know, you know, it, there, there's no excuse. Mm -hmm. You know, if you're going to send 10 people, you have 10 people. You need all 10 people to be able to do the same 10 things, the 10, same, the same exact standard, right? That's the way it is in firefighting. That's the way it is in some of the elite police units. So for those kinds of scenarios, yes. And it's because the outcome is deadly serious. It's, it's very, very critical that those people perform and they don't tolerate anybody that doesn't. So they, they select people that, that they think will do it. And then, then they train them. And if they don't, they, they let them go. And if they can, they're part of the team. They tend to stay committed for a long time. In the general commercial population, I've seen it mostly in entrepreneurs, mostly in people that have the, the chutzpah to start up a company, because essentially that's a risk taker who's, who's somehow come to grips with the possibility of failure and, and has decided that that's something that's worth risking. Sometimes they have failed before. I've met a lot of people that have had two or three businesses that went under before they were successful. That's kind of hardened them to their sense of purpose, their sense of mission. And then, you know, then there's those that started one business that didn't do well and they just went and got a job and said, that's just too tough. So I don't think it's a requirement. I wouldn't consider it a standard I look for out here in the, in the regular world um, and with regular technical experts and employees. Now with leaders, because of my pedigree, I expect my leaders to care about the bigger picture, care about the mission and care about the people that they're leading. That's not necessarily taught. It's not taught in school. It's not taught in college. It's usually not taught as a cultural requirement and standard in most companies. So when you're interviewing, you have a chance, just like in the SEAL teams or in a firefighting unit, to try to screen for those characteristics, behaviors, attributes up front. And hopefully you, you, you have enough sense of the person that when they come in, it doesn't turn into a train wreck and you have to let them go because they're beating up on everybody. And yeah. Yeah. Um, now, sorry, my arm slipped there. <laughs> um, obviously this podcast, you know, is, it's not meant for corporations. It, it's meant for individuals. So I guess the next obvious question is, and this is kind of a doozy. Um, how can one person who maybe doesn't know if they're at that level to you know pass the selection or, or whatnot what are some things that they can do to get to that point specifically with the mindset that you are talking about um, because i feel like that would be more applicable to whatever anyone might be doing right sure well are you familiar with the book what color is your parachute have you ever heard of that uh, i haven't it's been around for about four decades. It's a self inventory tool. And what it is, is designed for somebody who doesn't know what they want to do, or isn't sure what they're doing is the right thing for them to read through, go through all series of introspective exercises, kind of a discovery. And I think the, the final, you know, goal of the book is the old adage, you know, if you, if you love with you, what you do, it doesn't feel like work. Or if, if you can, figure out how to get paid for what you love to do. You know, you know, that's, that's like the yeah. perfect job. And I think 
in answer to your question, a book like that is the first place to go to make sure what you think you want to be is the right thing to be. Obviously, there's a lot of cliche examples of, of teenagers being driven into uh, academic profiles to become doctors or lawyers or engineers or do what their parents did or take over the family business, whatever. And there's a huge statistical, um, you know, historically, statistically, like 60% of those, those driven kids walk away from those professions either right after graduation or before they even finish the process because it wasn't theirs. They, they didn't own it. It, it was never theirs. It was somebody else's imprinted uh, goal and, and set of expectations for their happiness. So first thing you got to do is you really have to do a little bit of, a, of soul searching and you have to look at all the different things you can do in life because being a leader is only one little thing in the entire spectrum of what you could do. Being an artist, you don't have to be a leader. Being a musician, you don't have to be a leader. Uh, if you want to be a, um, uh, I don't know, a, a, a personal coach for fitness and all that, there's some motivational aspects to that, but it doesn't mean that you have to hire and fire people. So, and, and I have, I have enough examples in my past watching people that thought they needed to aspire like the classics, you know, you have a top salesperson. They think they should be the sales manager. All of a sudden they're the sales manager. They're the worst sales manager, but they were the best salesperson mm -hmm. <laughs> because they were happy, but they thought they were supposed to go to that next level or, or somebody in management said, you should do this. And it, you basically killed the golden goose by doing that. Mm -hmm. They were unhappy and maybe not, that wasn't their talent. Uh, so you, you need to spend some time doing that. It's kind of like measure, measure twice, cut once mm -hmm. before you throw yourself into some uh, discipline regimen of study and, and mental preparation and kind of go into a warrior pattern where you're going to wake <laughs> up every morning and you're going to, whatever it is you want to do, you're going to you know study it, you know, and, right. and practice it and be good at it. So that's the first thing I'd say, make sure you know that you've given yourself enough time to discover what it is you want to do. And, and I'll caveat that with, I've had several professions. I'm 63 years old and I'm still rocking and rolling. I, I'm going to probably work the next 15 years easy. I have good DNA. So I tend to, I tend not to look 65, 63 and I don't move around like I'm 63, mm -hmm. but I am. And that means that I've gone through several types of professions, including the SEAL teams. And it's giving me a perspective that if you come out and you want to be a salesperson, be a salesperson for 10 years. If at the end of that, you don't feel like that's really what, you know, makes you happy. And you want to be an artist or you want to, you know, be a carpenter or you want to open up a, a restaurant, do that for 10 years. That's only 20 years. You're 40 years now, 40 years old. If you came out of high school or you're 44, if you came out of college, uh, I've done speeches. I did one with some Academy, uh, Naval Academy um, graduates, alumni. And the point of the speech was talking about what, what do you do when you get out of the uniform? You know, when, when you retire or leave and the mindset you should have and how do you get a job and all that. And I did more of kind of a tough love, scared straight approach. I said, first off, you're not going to have the job you have now. You're not going to be the captain of a ship or you're not going to be a fighter pilot. You know, they don't have that out there. Um, so set your expectations differently. You know, hang your uniform up, put your medal someplace where, you know, your friends and family can see that and say that was a really fantastic career. And then put your, put your apprentice hat on and go in with your eyes open and your ears open and your mouth shut and become a student at the apprentice level until you understand whatever it is you want to go into. Once you get a good handle on whatever line of work you want to go into, all that other experience, all that leadership communication skills, you know, the judgment and wisdom of all those years will kick in, but it'll matter because you know the business or, you know, the functional, you know, um, operational activity as a practitioner. And what a lot of guys will do is they'll come in and they'll think, well, if I was a Navy commander or I was an uh, Air Force colonel, or that's where I'm going to come in there or a little bit higher. No, it's a different profession. It's a different career. Start from scratch. Because that's not how you started the Air Force. You started the Air Force as a, a Doug that knew nothing. So that, that's a psychological thing. So if anybody listening to this isn't at the beginning of their, their life, uh, a professional life, that's the same kind of threshold. If you decided that you're not happy where you are, don't expect that you're just going to transfer over 
and your pay, your salary, your security, or feeling of security is going to be, you know, relevant. It's not. You're going to be at risk. You're going to be the new guy. You know, the I think the first command I got when I joined SEAL Team Two, uh, I was 18 years old, was go empty the trash can. <laughs> right. I mean, I just graduated SEAL training. I went through Army Jump School. I have Army Jump wings. I walk into SEAL Team Two, and I'm told go empty the trash can. And the guy that told me to go empty the trash can was a guy named Mike Thornton, who was a Medal of Honor winner in Vietnam. And he about six foot three, and I was about 125, 130 pounds soaking wet. I went from being somebody to nobody in about 30 seconds walking into that room. <laughs> and I knew what my function was for a while, emptying the trash can. Everybody's got to go through it. I love that. Um, I think maybe that's a cycle we should all get used to is that, you know, even in different parts of the day, you're somebody and you're nobody. My friend, uh, he's a real estate agent and he, have you heard of top golf? Yeah. 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 So he bought a, uh, you know, for business purposes, he bought a membership there, kind of one of the higher ones that way he could take not only friends when he wants to, but also uh, clients and things like that. And he has various businesses that he runs. And um, he told us once he went and he's, he's younger than me. Um, he's like 23, 24. Um, and uh, he and his wife don't always dress in classic real estate agent clothing. You know, sometimes they wear hoodies and things like that, just like normal people. And they go to this top golf and, uh, at first the attendant or whatever was kind of treating them like, who are you? Like, whatever. And then he's like, wait, we're platinum members. And then totally flipped the script. And the attendant was like, oh yeah, anything you need, we'll get it for, and super kind of servile to him. Uh, and, and again, that's just a good example of, we shouldn't get too attached to being the top guy or the bottom guy, because things can change just like that. Um, especially with how crazy, you know, life has been with COVID and whatnot, you know, things can you know, you could be let go from your job like that just because there's no money. You know what I mean? Yeah, there's, and I talk a lot, a lot about it in the book, Be Nimble. The, you know, obviously COVID's a, a major disruptive event. It's a black swan event, mm -hmm. kind of a classic, a little less sudden, but kind of on the par of a 9-11 or, or a Pearl Harbor attack, you know, it changes everything everywhere. And what they teach you in prisoner of war school in the military and all the fighter pilots from the different services and the special forces guys, you have to go through a, a school where they, they tell you all about the history of survival and prison war camps all the way back to civil war. And, and then they teach you coping mechanisms and explain how you're going to adapt and all that. And then you go into the actual environment, you change your clothes, you go in and you're a prisoner for a while and then they let you escape. And then, then they bring you back in cause you can't escape. So, uh, cause they control the whole environment around the prison camp. But the, the rule that they teach, and Viktor Frankl in his book, Man's Search for Meaning, uh, about his experience in, in a Nazi prison camp, and he happened to be a psychiatrist, so he had a pretty good professional you know, backing uh, to his thoughts and his opinions. He, he aligned with the same thing. He said, and they said in prisoner war, war school, that the people that had the hardest time adapting as prisoners were the ones that couldn't let go of their past identity. And the identity wasn't who they were as a person, but who they thought they were with all the trappings, the wealth, the status, you know, what society thought they were. Not whether they were a good person or a bad person. So he'd see bankers, you know, well-to-do bankers and uh, successful politicians and successful entertainers that were well-known names just curl up in a ball in the fetal position and die in the, in the, in the German German camps. So the takeaway in the prison war school was, and you know, this is consistent with the feedback from, from prisoners all through, you know, almost a hundred years, hundred years plus of experience that if you walk in there and you still think you're, you know, a squadron commander, you still think you're, you know, a rich person, whatever it is that you think you are, the longer you hold on to that, the worse it's going to be for you. Because what you're supposed to do as a survival technique when something catastrophic happens like this, or so dramatic as a change, getting fired, a lot of other dramatic changes, you're supposed to clear your mind of all of that, look around you and start to absorb the new reality and become a student of the new reality. So now here we're back to that eyes open, ears open, mouth shut. 
what do the guards do? What's their routines? When do you get fed? What do you get punished for? You know, what are the parameters and the rules of movement around the camp? How can I keep myself healthy? How can I keep myself, you know, fed? How can I keep myself warm? How can I help everybody around me? How can they help me? How can we communicate without getting caught? Those are all the new rules, new reality. The ones that, that grab hold of that soon survive. And the ones that don't, don't. And Bud's training has got the same kind of background. There, there are people that, that we've had professional football players. We've had um, Ironman Hawaiian triathlete, you know, top five finishers quit. You know, I was like, really? You, just, you did the Hawaiian, you know, uh, the Ironman triathlon and, and you're quitting in a one and a half mile base swim because you think it's too cold. I mean, true story. So they just didn't let go. They, they saw themselves as, you know, I'm a hero. I'm a superstar. I'm an ex-professional football player going through buds <laughs> instead of I'm just, I'm just meat going through a selection process. And the sooner I figure this stuff out and fall and, and, and become good at surviving and then thriving in this new environment, the better it's going to be. Yeah. Again, that reminds me of another quote. Obviously I could quote Charles Darwin. That's, that's pretty obvious, but um, there was a quote that is like the meaning of life is to be at any moment willing to sacrifice everything you are for everything you could be or something like that. And in, in that sort of way, every single day, we're kind of reshaping our identity because things change every day. Um, and that's really fascinating. I, I love how you said become a student of the new, uh, the new reality because again, and it's exemplified by the questions you were asking, when you develop that curious, uh, curious mindset, you, you know, you're not emotionally involved with survival or thrival or whatever. Instead, you're just asking and learning and kind of gamifying your situation, which I think is a very powerful way to overcome any situation because everyone likes to feel like they're winning. And when you feel like you're actually playing a game, it might be easier to feel like you're winning, right? Yeah, I mean, that's not a bad way to look at it. It's a new set of rules, a new, um, a new framework. And if you can keep a sense of humor, which is also kind of critical to survival in almost any situation, um, you can kind of make a game out of it. Yeah. Uh, I, I want to ask now, you've had, like you said, a couple of careers uh, when you did start into the business world. What sort of things did you do? Uh, kind of what was that transition like? So I, I wanted to be a lawyer and a friend of mine talked me out of it after I took the LSAT because he was in uh, investment advisory work, mm -hmm. mostly in initial public offering stuff in Brazil us company but brazil operations he spoke portuguese he was a seal uh, officer and that was good for him but the person that owned that company uh had a son that i put through seal training when i was an instructor and my friend said well he'll hire you you know without even an interview and then we'll just figure out what to do with you and then i decided not to go there because i didn't speak portuguese i didn't have a lot of the skill sets that they were looking for and i went with another financial services firm where I could kind of grow my own business domestically up. And this was up in Maryland. And I did that for a couple of years and then moved on from that firm to do managed money and become a portfolio manager with uh, United Bank of Switzerland with UBS. And same type of work in that I was working with clients. First I had to find clients. I had to convince them to give me their life savings. And, and then I had to, uh, you know, grow their, grow their investment wealth and continue to grow my business and, and manage my business. And I had ended up having three employees working for me and, but it wasn't a big business and I didn't have to worry about working with a lot of peers and, and kind of like your, your standard corporate yeah. interaction. Uh, none of that was going on. It was very entrepreneurial, no salary, hundred percent fees and commissions. I got a salary for about three or four months to pass all of my my tests that were required for me to do what I was doing and then zero. So it was basically, you talk about Darwin. Uh, we had 41 people in the initial class when I started, all of them were successful. They were selected for that. Actually they were selected. We had like seven or eight interviews and, and competency tests and aptitude tests. And, and uh, I think there's, I don't even know if any of them are left in the business anymore, but 
when I left seven years, even though I was with another company, I think there were four people left in that original 41. And most of them left in the, in the first year when they went from, you know, a, a stipend training stipend for a couple of months to zero. And if you don't sell, if you don't find a new, a new client, you, you die. Mm-hmm. And maybe along the lines that we just talked about, and these are very successful people. All of a sudden they weren't successful if they weren't selling. So maybe they didn't like that, that paradigm and they left. Yeah. It's really hard for most people, including, I would, I would say me. Um, it's really hard for people in general to, you know, go from eating, uh, I guess, normal food and then realize, hey, <laughs> we're going to be really tight for a few months. So I might need to scale back how much I eat out or, you know, how many uh, trips we go on or whatnot, things like that. Yeah. I just put a picture of somebody with eight pack abs and then say, that's the goal now. <laughs> nice. Starvation has a purpose. <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. That's awesome. Um, so then what spurred or inspired you writing the book, Be Nimble? So I've, I've written eight novels and that was kind of, initially it was kind of a hobby and cathartic because it was fun to write. I write it between 5.15 and 6.15 in the morning every day, seven days a week. Before the sun comes up, I've already got it out of my system. And I've always liked to write ever since I was a kid. And to all the proceeds of my novels, I donate to the SEAL Veterans Foundation. So it's all, it goes to PSD and traumatic brain injury. Cause I didn't need the money from the novels. And I didn't think there was gonna be more than one. First, it was just a challenge. And then the first one did okay. And people liked it. And they said, you know, ready to do another one. You're going to do a sequel. Okay. So I ended up with four SEAL novels and four uh, science fiction novels about time travel. And so writing was, I mean, it was, it was like a discipline. It was like getting up and brushing your teeth. And I'd always thought that I wanted to write a business book about leadership in business. And so I, I help a lot of people. I talk to a lot of people. I coach a lot of people. I have a lot of direct reports. I'm a CEO. So I have executives that report to me. And, and then I have to perform leadership functions and I have to report to a board and, and so on. So I had a pretty good 360 view of, of the leadership job and I started to codify what I thought was important. And I almost called the book Be Humble because I believe in intellectual humility as a starting point. It's kind of what we were talking about with the prisoner war camp. You basically start out and say, I don't care what I was yesterday, good or bad. Right. I'm gonna wake up every morning, take 20 minutes, clear my mind of all that kind of um, baggage so that I'm open-minded and ready to accept new information and it's which is hard to do right if yesterday you know you got your your your, you didn't get the bonus you thought you were going to get you're carrying that forward right Mm -hmm. psychologically emotionally um if you did get a really big bonus a couple days ago now you're the man or the woman and you're walking around strutting around you know Mm -hmm. that's that's messing me up too so you can't rest on your laurels it doesn't matter what you did yesterday it doesn't matter whether you did it bad or good um you clear your mind, intellectual humility. And that's, that's the starting point. And the next thing was by being an open-minded learner with intellectual humility, I found that you can absorb information from all kinds of sources without questioning or just constantly comparing it to what you think you know. And that allows you to be highly nimble and adaptable in the choices and judgments that you make. You're not, it's like taking the blinders off. Another way of looking at it metaphorically is if let's say 1984 you know if you went and 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 had i said i want you to tell me you know everything you know about a subject and you went if the, if it existed you went to the cyclopedia britannica from 1984 that your dad has on the shelf and you looked up answers and you came back and you told me this is what it is well in 1984 that was it that was the word that was that was the truth that was the that was the best you could get but it became stale probably before it was even printed. And bit by bit over the years, decade by decade, 20%, 30%, 40%, 50% of that entire set of encyclopedias became moot or so wrong that they're irrelevant. Yet people treat going to college and having a job for X number of years the same way. They go back and retrieve like a book off the shelf well, I know how to deal with this. Well, I've seen this before. I know exactly what this is. I know what this is. This is good or this is bad. And they're just painting it with all this stuff from the past. And you, and you can't be nimble. You can't be adaptable and agile 
as a leader or as a designer or as anybody that's got to, you know, think out of the box and, and be creative and creativity is what keeps you surviving and, and thriving and growing and evolving over time. You can't be adaptable if you're sitting there doing the same thing over and over again. It's the exact opposite of being adaptable. So in this world, especially with the way, you know, COVID shocked everything, COVID just fractured what's been sitting around for a long time. Why couldn't we have been doing Zoom 15 years ago? We could have. We just didn't, didn't do it because everybody was just used to the way we were communicating. And I, I could go on a long list of that. So sometimes these disruptions are, are, are perceived as a, a big negative, but uh, most of the time there's somebody out there seeing them as opportunities. Yeah. Uh, again, I was reading on your website, the word for opportunity in Chinese is the mixture of opportunity and crisis. So, you know, whenever there's some sort of crisis, like you say, there's an opportunity. Yeah. So that I decided to write, to codify all that, all those things I just said, and a lot more about the mechanics of being a leader, talent selection, grooming, mentoring, training, coaching talent, and putting together teams when it made sense and not putting together teams when it didn't make sense. How to incent and inspire and influence behaviors in a positive way, how to create a culture that's, that's positive and leaning forward and adaptable. And there's a lot of, a lot of things in there like that. So, you know, that 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 was the the genesis and i finished the book and got a publisher and it's coming out january 1st and the publisher was nice enough to publish my second book be visionary which uh just got through copy editing so it's going to come out at the end of the summer next year awesome already a second book coming out that's excellent news <laughs> Yeah, I'm like, come on, it, the timing is goofy because you know you spend, yeah, 200 days right or 150 days writing it, and another 150 days getting it edited and looked at and everything, and then they sit on it for six months for some because they want they want to build buzz. So it, it looks like I'm writing a book like every 15 days or something, mm -hmm. and it's not. It's just the timing's all messed up. That's smart marketing, though. <laughs> yeah, um, I guess. Well, well, Marty, it's been awesome having you here on the show. Uh, I've enjoyed our conversation. Uh, how can people reach out to you, support you, get the book, and also see what you're up to? Sure. Well, the easiest way is I have an author website. It's MartyStrongBeNimble.com. MartyStrongBeNimble.com. And there's links to my articles, uh, obviously, to Be Nimble, which is in pre-sale right now at Amazon's. So it, you, know, you, can, you can still buy it even if, um, before January 1st. And it's in Kindle format, too. The... Um, I've got my podcast appearances. So there's a lot of information on there. And as Be Visionary, the second book starts to get lined up. We'll start to tee up when that's available for pre-sale. And but that's the best place. MartyStrongBeNimble.com. Excellent. I'll put that up in the show notes. But like I said, now's the time for us to give our audience some action items. So based on our conversation, this is what I came up with. Um, number one, celebrate life more often. Uh, number two, develop a better sense of humor. Number three, get a really good idea of what you want to do. Was there anything you would like to add to that list? Try to maintain a, a positive perspective on the world around you, which will help you with that sense of humor. Try to exercise the intellectual humility, you know, the waking up every morning and and don't take yourself too seriously from the day before and look at the world as kind of a blank slate, walk into it. And the third thing that I think everybody would benefit from, it's not necessarily meditation, but especially with people that have stressful lives and, and leaders, take 20, 20 minutes, usually early in the day, and try to not think about optimizing or executing tasks and to-do lists. Think about what you would like to see your world personally or your world professionally, um, two years, three years, five years out. Because if you, you never look at the horizon and you never pick a place, you know, a shining light to aim for, you basically just muddle along and so, with somebody else's agenda kind of driving you moment to moment, day to day. And that's no way to live. Yeah, agreed. Awesome. I will get those uh, show notes. Uh, I will put those action items in the show notes as well as how to reach out to you. But Marty, thank you so much for coming on the show and dealing with my scatterbrain this. But uh, it's been fun having you here and, and talking with you. No, it's, it's been a good interview. I like it. Thanks, Justin. Thank you. 
Thank you guys for listening to another episode of the Hard Thing Podcast. I really appreciate you and all your support. Thank you for all the reviews, the, the, the times you share the podcast. Thank you for helping us make this bigger and better and helping us get better guests on the show. Uh, I'd also like to invite you guys to go to OURrescue.org. Get involved. They're a nonprofit organization that goes undercover to rescue kids from sex trafficking. Uh, they're an organization called Operation Underground Railroad, and they really are awesome and amazing. So go to OURrescue.org. Get involved. Come back next week for another amazing, amazing episode. Thank you guys so much again for all your love and support. We'll see you. Keep doing hard things, and you will overcome average. Hey guys, one quick announcement for today's show, and you might have heard this already, even in today's episode, but... Uh, I have an awesome opportunity for you guys. Once in a lifetime, you have the opportunity to have dinner with myself and a covert CIA operative. That's right, an undercover spy. Uh, my guest, Andrew Bustamante, has been gracious enough to offer himself up <laughs> uh, as guest for a dinner with myself and one lucky audience member. So if you want to sign up for that, make sure you hit the link in the show notes below. As well, you can go to Instagram and hit the link in my bio at The Hard Thing Podcast. This is first come, first serve, and there's only one slot. So whoever signs up first will have the opportunity to come to Utah and have dinner with myself and Andrew Bustamante. It's an exciting opportunity. It's one that you'll be able to brag about to your friends of being able to sit down having dinner with an undercover secret agent. So don't waste any time. Go ahead and sign up in the link in the show notes or go to Instagram at The Hard Thing Podcast and click the link in my bio and you'll find all the relevant information there. Uh, so look forward to having dinner with you. <laughs>